0: Hello, and welcome to the Cross-Functional and Friendly Podcast. I'm Nikita Miller, and I'm currently dealing with the aftermath of COVID. So if you hear lots of coughing, that's what's going on here. And that reminds us that we are still in 2022.
1: Thanks, Nikita. We're going to let you rest your voice, hopefully, on this one a little bit. I'm I'm Kristen, the CEO and president over at Shogun in We are cross-functional and friendly. This is the podcast where we talk all things sales, product, marketing, life, et cetera. The last two episodes, we've been talking about career and transitions as we shared some of our own from recently. We also talked to product marketing expert, April Dunford. Today, we're going to wrap up our series on transformation with another guest. Do check out both of the other episodes. They are really excellent and a lot of interesting insights there.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm Stella Garber, and I'm super, super excited to welcome our guest tonight. She is a friend, a co-investor, a general badass, and an amazing human. Welcome to the podcast, Sonia. Thank you guys for having me. I'm excited to be here. Sonia is a general partner at Pritzker Group Venture Capital and an investment partner at the Community Fund. She's also an avid angel investor and sits on a bajillion boards, I think. There's probably an actual number, which you'll tell us, but (laughs) in addition, she's got three lovely kiddos all under age six, seven? Six and under, yeah. Six and under. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that we both have a daughter named Maya, Sonia made the transition from operator to investor, which we have talked about previously and so we're really excited to talk to her about that. So let's just get into it. Sonia, can you give us your own background and your own words and start at the very beginning?
3: Yeah. So I think the good news is if you're sitting out there and trying to decide what you do with your life, you'll see in my path that it was super nonlinear. So you can try one thing, change your mind, try another thing. It's totally cool. I started off in engineering. I was always good at math and science. So I studied engineering at the University of Michigan. I did mechanical engineering, but was a soft taught programmer. And so my first job out of undergrad was working for General Motors in their advanced engineering group writing kind of the algorithms that go into your powertrain, specifically your transmission, which was really fun work actually as an engineer. But when I looked at the people who were making the decisions for the company and were actually making like all the strategic decisions on where we got to spend our time, all of those people at General Motors at that time especially were MBAs. And so I was like, okay, well, clearly if I want to go run this company someday or be a decision maker, I'm going to have to go back to school and get my MBA. So I made that decision pretty quickly. I was fortunate to get Into a business school out east. Went there for two years. Okay, that is you're gonna
2: trying to be humble.
3: (laughs) Go ahead. I went to Harvard Business School, and while I was there, I met a lot of really smart people, and some of the smartest people I knew, who were similarly math minded like me, were working on Wall Street. And I was like, oh, you know, being from Bay Village, Ohio originally, and then you know being in Michigan for college, I didn't know that many people who had done finance on Wall Street, but figured I should give it a try. And so I got an internship at Goldman Sachs and their tech media telecom group in 2007. Did not love banking. I think if you've been an engineer and been doing like more creative math, which is what we get to do in the advanced engineering group, formatting spreadsheets and doing algebra all night long was just not that fulfilling. But I got to work on the IPO team for a company called Bill Me Later. And they ended up deciding not to go public, but they took a big investment from Amazon. And I did all the work on that transaction. And I got really excited about two things. One was I was like, oh, my gosh, I should be a founder. I am on the wrong side of the table. They're having so much more fun than I am. And then the second thing I was like, ha, Amazon, 2007. They just launched Amazon Prime. I'm like, this company, they were just starting to get into more categories and books and media. I was like, this company's on to something. So I went back to business school my second year and tinkered with some startup ideas. But quite honestly, I didn't really have the confidence to go. I didn't have a killer idea. And I didn't really have the confidence to go out and start my own thing quite yet. And so I went to work for Amazon and I was at the time their pitch was, Hey, come work for us. You can launch a new category. You can be part of building what we're doing and learn how to be a founder with all the support of a big business. Now, I don't think you actually learn how to be a founder when you debate this, but if you're going to a big company, it's just, there's so much support and infrastructure, but I did have a phenomenal experience I was part of the team that launched the clothing category. You know, it grew from very small numbers to 200 million while I was there over two years, which you can only do if you're in a big company with all the marketing support and email lists that come with a big company. But it was a ton of fun. And then I got engaged and my husband was in New York. And so I wanted to start a startup, but financially just, it didn't make sense for us both to be in New York without income and he was doing his MBA. And so I took a job in consulting for a year. And then as soon as my husband landed his post MBA job, I quit, or I actually went on sabbatical, and then I started a startup in 2011 that was in the mobile shopping space. We raised venture capital funding, did the Techstars Accelerator, and then kind of struggled to find product market fit. And so we were able to do a soft landing and get acquired by a company called Me Not, that was a public company out of Boston. And it was a fascinating... We actually had an interesting process because at that time, I don't know if you remember, it was like Yahoo was buying every mobile team with a pulse. And this is like 2013, 2014. The iPad app store was brand new. A lot of the apps were getting crazy valuations. This was before you realized you couldn't build. It's really hard to build a really big business is just being an app, mobile app. But either way, I landed at Me Not in Austin. And I didn't think I was going to stick around because most people that come in to a big company don't, but I actually loved it. And so I stayed for two years. I started off and I was running like the mobile team and then kind of, Pulled in more parts of the company so that by the time I left, I was running like a bigger chunk of product team. And then my earnout was up. My husband and I were splitting time between Austin and New York, which was not sustainable. And we wanted to start a family. And so we decided to put down roots in Chicago, bought a place. I thought I get a
1: commission every time someone moves to Chicago. I
3: I will say I did get some questionable from my, you know, New Yorkers and other folks being like, why are you going to live in Chicago? And I was like, I'm going to start another company. So it doesn't matter. What the tech ecosystem looks like there you know i'll figure it out and so i started meeting with investors when i got to chicago to be like hey let's get to know each other before i have to ask you for money because one of my biggest lessons learned as a first-time founder was it was really hard to raise money if you're not known like i think there's a myth out there even now that it's like shark tank you walk in a room you do a quick two-minute pitch and you walk out with a check or a commitment and the reality is it never works that way and so i was like okay let's get to know some investors and people who are doing that in chicago I met with the Prisker group in that context and they happened to be hiring. And as I talked about the world and how I thought about the consumer space specifically, they liked the way I thought about things. And they asked me if I'd ever thought about being an investor. And at that time, I still remembered how hard it was to be a founder. So I have so much respect, Stella, for oh, going into too. the trenches again. So I was like, yeah, that sounds like it could be a little bit less stressful. And I was pregnant with my first at the first, at that time too. So it was like a a good time to try something different and i thought i'd like it and i do it's it's been fascinating like there's so many differences from being an operator to being a vet, but i've lo- i've loved it i really have many that, that my dog was pawing at my door in distress <laughs> Gotcha. Yeah, we'll clean it up <laughs> yeah how many how many years ago was that that was 7 years ago 7 years ago 2015, yeah 2015 okay. 2016
2: but Pritzker is not the only fund that you in invest in or invest yes. out of i should say Yes.
3: So I'm also involved with a fund called the Community Fund, and they are kind of like a scout fund model in the way they operate. So it's a distributed team. It's everybody's side hustle. It's a single LP fund that's backed by Flybridge. And the thesis is around investing in community-driven startups at the earliest stages, so pre-seed and seed, which is much earlier than where Pritzker Group invests. So Pritzker Group is more of a Series A investor writing Five, 4 or $5 million entry checks, and then putting in pretty big checks behind that to support our companies. So it's complementary. And thesis-wise, it's aligned with the way I think about investing even at Pritzker Group. I love companies that have community as part of either their marketing strategy or their product strategy, or it's core to the way like they're running their company. Awesome.
2: So I think – I'm sure you get this question a lot because we've talked about it, and we
3: have mixed feelings. But the MBA – Yay, yeah. or no? Totally depends. I think for me as a career switcher who didn't know what I wanted to do, it was valuable. I think if you're able, so if I had known that I wanted to go into venture and I'd been able to get a venture job before my MBA, then I wouldn't have needed to go back. And I think if you want to be a founder, it's again, it's like a question. I think there's value for the top couple programs because you get a lot of the network, but it's expensive and it's time that you're spending, not actually getting real life experience. And so mixed bag. Mixed bag. I always say it depends. Yeah,
2: yeah. That's. I feel like that's the that's the right answer because it's never it's yeah. never
3: the it's same. It's always for- a lawyer. It depends, kind of answer <laughs> for me. I think Stella
1: threw that in for me because these two are MBAs and I'm the lone man out who's like, should I have done this? What did I miss out on? So
3: thank you. <laughs> Get me through like the hard knock life experiences. So yeah. That's
1: right. I learned it on the streets. Totally. Yeah, I think
3: you turned out okay,
2: Kristen. I know. <laughs> and so, all right, let's talk about that transition from building to investing because I feel like you sound you made it sound easier than it actually was. So what was going through your mind when you were sort of thinking like, do I go to the dark side? Did you think of it as the dark side? What were you thinking?
3: Yeah, so for me at the time it was like another adventure. I felt like I had been I've been somewhat out of didactic in most things. Like I learned to program in college on my own, and then I went to investment banking from engineering, which is not totally linear, and then Amazon product management, which not totally linear. So it felt like I was going to learn a lot, and I was so curious to see behind the curtains of startups that had been my peers, quite honestly, or, or were because I knew what it was like to build my own startup, but as a venture capitalist, you get to ask like the hard hitting questions and get into how a business works and what their actual numbers are. And so for me, as an intellectually curious people, I was like, this is going to be fun and fascinating. Like I just love the data and the information. I'm a little bit of like a numbers. And did anything,
2: was anything running through your mind about like, I guess for you, it
3: was just Pritzker. Did you consider other firms at the time? No, I didn't. I mean, I really think that Quite honestly, and we've had this conversation, Stella. As we've talked about, like just landscape and world, I got a little bit lucky in that. I don't know that there were that many funds that would have been interesting to me, other than Pritzker in the Chicago ecosystem, at least. So it's a little bit of lucky. And then I think the thing that I had to get my head wrapped around was I do feel like as a venture investor or even an angel investor, you're behind the scenes. You're more of the support versus being on the field playing the game and like as a founder. But I. Part of my motivation to doing venture was impact related. Like I looked at the ecosystem in Chicago at that time, and there were no, there were not a lot of female investors at venture capital funds. And even at Pritzker Group, when I joined, I was, you know, the only woman for a little while, and then we brought some more women in. And so it felt like I knew of Pritzker Group through reputation. And as I did my research, it felt like they had a lot of influence and impact in the ecosystem. And And I felt like I could be good at it. I mean, impact there versus like, it's a slower, longer path. I think you make even more impact. And, you know, if you build a game changing startup as a founder and you, you know, the way you hire people and like the way you create the culture, if you can build a billion dollar business, like nothing better in my mind. But for me, it felt like, okay, at this moment in time, I can make an immediate impact on this side of the table. And I haven't ruled out going back to being a founder over the long Mm. run. That was going to be my next question yeah what what do you think about that? what would I, I guess think what would make ten it- years out? yeah, I would have to be like the exact right idea that I felt compelled to go build and then the right people and team to go do it with. But I will say since being a founder the first time around my the hardest thing for me was hiring and hiring quickly like once you raise money all of a sudden, it's like oh my gosh, you have to go hire a bunch of people, and at that point in my career, I had been an employee, but I hadn't been a manager yet, and so I didn't have like an army of people who'd work for me that I was like, oh yeah. I know that this person's a great engineer, this person's a great product manager, this person's a great designer. So I started from like after exit. And just as I look back, one of my biggest lessons learned was around hiring. I call it building my mafia, where as I meet interesting, smart people, I try to keep them close so that in 10 years, and I don't know how, I, you know, how necessarily like we'll work together today, maybe, but I'm, I always have this like 10, 20 year vision of like, I want certain people in my orbit so that when I'm, if I'm building a company, you know, they're on my list and hopefully they want to work with me too because I've done enough, you know, favors or help, tried to be helpful.
2: Totally. That's such a – that's a really good insight because I, I definitely think you don't realize how much that building a company is about people and relationships and hiring. So that's that's a great insight. I guess like being – I guess let's just talk about being a woman in VC because our, our last guest on the podcast, she had mentioned that she – it had reached a certain point in her career where if she was a dude, she would have just become a VC, but it wasn't like those opportunities weren't open to her at the time. So, you know, what's it like?
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, there. I mean, I think that it did factor into my calculus. It felt like I had this amazing opportunity offered through Pritzker Group that I know was not easy for women to get. And I looked at the ecosystem and like the facts were in the numbers. Like there were no female general partners that- any of the funds like math didn't have a female gem. origin not to name names chicago ventures you know none of them had women origin like none of them so
2: none of them none of them had I women had
3: their teams let alone like in their partnerships and so i was like oh my gosh coming from new york where the numbers were bad but and even for me when i raised my first you know million dollars i didn't have any women on my cap table it was shocking to me i was building a startup in the shopping space that was targeting women. And so yeah, it is hard. I kind of went on a tangent there, but it's the thing that's hard is so much about ventures getting into the right deals and having great deal flow. And that is a networking and a relationship game. And that is super subjective. And so some of the greats, like the old OG women in venture capital talk about this being one of the major things that needs to be corrected. And I am encouraged because I feel like there are more women's networks that are forming that are strong. So I'm feeling better about the early stages, but at the later stages where it's like, okay, I can get a company from zero to a million to you know, 10, 20 million in funding. And then it's like, they need to get that $50 million check from a growth equity fund. And there it is still slim pickings. There are not many women that I can call on to be like, hey, will you at least just take a chance, take a look at this deal? It's like, you have to go through a very different path. But I mean, it's that probably more acutely felt on the, the founder's side, but I do It's all and even in the hiring process, like I've run the hiring process for Pritzker Group over the last several years. And it's so subjective in venture because there's so many people that apply for the job. And I think there's three great things that you need to have as an investor. One is analytical chops. And so many people will check that box. And then the other thing is your sourcing network. Like, do you know lots of people? Can you get good deal flow? So many people can claim that or it's hard to really evaluate that. It's super. It's not hard to quantify. And then the third thing is like, can you build really strong relationships with founders after you invest and be influential? And that again is a super subjective thing to so you're you're often making a decision that's super subjective on who you bring into the firm because I think a lot of people could do the investing job. It's definitely an apprenticeship mentorship model as to how you get smart faster. And if you have access to great deals, you're gonna look like you're making better decisions if your pool of deal flow is better. So I don't know. I'm like, feel like it's getting better, but it's still, it's still, still feels like the scales are tipped a little bit. But yeah. The
0: second one is so is really interesting because there are so few people that have access to those networks and those deals. So I wonder how you, I mean, how do you evaluate that or even discount it in that process if you know entire populations don't actually have access to that network.
3: Yeah. No, I mean, a lot of it, so at the later stages, what's nice is, at, so by Series A, you have a little bit more data. The problem is if those founders or companies don't get funded at the seed stage or the pre-seed stage, then they never make it to Series A. So there's a little, there's like a little, so I, I do think that now at the seed and Series seed, you're starting to see more funds that have a focus on making sure that more people are getting funding, but then yeah, there There's still gaps. It's really hard to because it's not always an apples to apples comparison and it's and then again, it's like I get pitched a hundred hundreds of companies and I get to pick two or three that I invest in with big checks per year. I'll do maybe a dozen smaller checks per year, but like five million dollar checks. I'm doing two or three of those per year, and so some of it is like when you meet with a founder, so much of it is subjective. Like it's the timing. Did you just do a deal? Did you know, is something blowing up in one of your other companies? Do you have a category bias because you had a company that went under in the space. And so you don't want to do another deal in that space or yeah. It's when I was a founder, I thought it was more of a meritocracy and it's definitely not.
2: It's it's amazing how big of a an impact that that timing thing makes. Even like as a founder, thinking about the macroeconomic situation today versus, you know, nine months ago or six months ago in the startups that were getting funded. But specifically as a VC, this is something I didn't realize until very late in my career. It's like if you want to be a general partner at a venture firm, that's that's like when a, when they launch another fund. You don't yeah. just – you can't just be promoted or get that job. So can you talk a little bit about that? So yeah. Yeah.
3: So basically, there's a fixed carry pool with every fund. Let's call it 20 points of carry. And at the beginning of the fund, the general partners make decisions to divide up that carry. And so if that happens when you're raising the fund, you kind of negotiate that as a partnership and decide what that out those allocations look like. And then you've got a three year investing horizon usually on the fund you're raising. Sometimes it's two, sometimes it's four, but let's call it three, just to keep it simple. And so if you join a fund in the middle of that investing cycle, the partners have to decide to take away from their pool to give you some carry. And you're getting the benefit of all the deals that have historically been done over the first year and a half or or disadvantaged. You just you don't know and venture until 10 years from now, but you haven't, let's say you get hired a year and a half of the fund being invested. There's a bunch of deals you didn't have a chance to participate in the decision-making process around. And so it's harder for you to join mid-cycle. Generally, the way partners, new partners are brought on is with a new fund, you come in. And maybe you're a venture partner or an advisor or an EIR or some other informal thing before that to help build the relationship and get to know a fund. But, but yeah, very rarely do you see new partners being brought on like midstream of investing a already raised fund.
2: So if you were a person who wanted to be a general partner at a venture capital fund, what would your advice be today? Let's say that, that that was like your dream job. What would you tell people?
3: Yeah. So it depends a little bit on the point of career. Like I think if you're very young, I would say go get credentialed by like one of the big funds. Like if you want to do later stage and Insight or if you want to do early stage uh Kleiner and Andreessen, and then go raise your own fund. Because I'm seeing a lot of people spin out of those larger funds and raise sizable first funds as an emerging manager. If you're mid-career or later and you're trying to join, I think that it's a mutual matching process. So the best situation is where you come in and you know the partnership really well, and they know you really well because maybe you've invested together, or maybe you were the founder and they were your investors. So you know them very, very well. Because- Partnerships are like relationships, and some are functional, some are dysfunctional. And you know, you never, you don't want to get stuck in a bad relationship because once you commit to joining a general partnership as a general partner, you're buying in, like you're participating in what's called the GP commit, which is usually like two or three percent of a fund. So it's a hundred million dollar fund. You, as the general partners, however many there are, are going to put in two or three million dollars, you know, in aggregate, which means you're writing a very large personal check, and so. You want to make sure it's kind of like a marriage with no divorce, and that like you 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 want to make sure that that relationship is good, and that this is a place you want to be for ten years. Also, venture investments take forever to pan out, and so you want to make sure you're around for ten years. If you make initial investment in year one, like you've got ten years before you see whether that portfolio comes to fruition and it's a good fund or a bad fund, and your carry is going to be worth anything or not. And the relationship stuff is just it's so important. Like I'd say, get to know people advising funds, sitting in on the investment committee meetings, if you can, are the best ways I've seen to get to know how people think about things and how partnerships function because the rubber hits the road when you got to make a decision on do you do a deal or not. And I think the most interesting conversations are when you see the partnership disagree and like, is it a respectful disagreement? Is it a like, can you disagree but commit? And is it consensus driven? Like different funds have different ways of doing things. I fundamentally don't believe that consensus driven firms can drive great outcomes. And so, you know, if someone's trying to force consensus, like that's to me, a huge red flag, or if you just got jerks, like some people are on a power trip. And I think the power of being a VC goes to their head. And those are not people you want to work with now.
2: Did you want to say something, Kristen? Because I have many comments. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I just think it, that's such an important thing about the relationships and and the fact that if you are joining a firm with, with VC, it is that 10-year thing. I think that's what's always kept me a little bit – not at an arm's length, but I've definitely – in interacting with different firms, you do get that cultural – like I, I think the sitting in on the investment committee meeting is like such an important thing. Like – I've seen, some, I've seen some things, I've seen some really ugly things and I mean, it's, it's really important. And I think that's also like one of the ways like you were saying before that you can drive that cultural change because it is a lot of old white dudes right now and like why should they be making the decisions about what's going to, you know, what the technology is going to be dominant in, in 10 years or whatever. Yeah, I don't know. So for
3: how do we get more women in? What can we do? Yeah. I mean, I think I advise women to angel invest if they're interested. I know Stella, you and I share a passion for getting more women on cap tables because it is a way to hack the system. It's like you're not waiting for permission to be a partner to fund. You can start proving out your track record and that you can get into good deals and they have a great network and you can quantify that. It's like something you can point to that's concrete and quantitative that will set you apart from other investors. And I told people it doesn't have to be big checks. It could be 2,500K checks or like 10K checks, whatever you can afford. But make sure that you do enough deals like 10 to 15 to build a robust portfolio so you have something hit. One of the best pieces of advice I got from a business school classmate who had gone straight into venture capital. And so she'd been you know doing it for a long time. By the time I transition meanderingly into venture capital. She said you got to take shots on goal. She said that. She she was at a mega fund and I think struggled to get make partner, quite honestly. I mean, she has now at another fund. She had to leave and she found her way, but she felt like one of the things that was holding her back was she had been somewhat hesitant to take shots on goal. She had colleagues, sometimes male, co- many male colleagues that were less discriminating and you know, the deals that they were doing and as a result, when it came time to get promoted, they were getting promoted ahead of her because they take taken shots on goal. An adventure, you just – you got to take shots on goal.
2: Oh, man.
3: That's annoying to hear because it,
2: it's like that thing about how women always think that they're not qualified or they need more data to make a decision and that, mm-hmm. that really – that hurts to hear. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to switch gears unless Nikita or Kristen, you want to jump in with any questions for
3: Sonia.
0: I had one you mentioned earlier, it's an apprenticeship model. Can you talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about what that looked like for you when you transitioned?
3: Yeah. So I feel like when I joined Prisker Group, the amazing thing, the fund had been around for 25 years. So I kind of got to stand on the shoulders of giants and that I could get a meeting with any VC fund I wanted. And so a lot of people would get in the room with me because I was with Prisker Group. I also got to sit in a lot of deal flow calls and decision-making processes and portfolio reviews. And so I learned a lot in my first year, not only by writing small checks, which was another piece of advice. My partners were like very comfortable having me write checks even in, in year one, but sitting in on some of the stuff that happens after you invest, which you learn a lot from. And so I just got a lot of data because... Pritzker Group had been investing for 25 years. There was a portfolio of probably about 30 main companies, which are companies we have 10 million plus in, and then like another 30 like smaller investments that were in the portfolio. And so I got to see all different flavors of what happens after you invest, what actual numbers look like. And so that helped me calibrate and also get smart faster than if I had been starting from ground zero and I needed to build my network myself completely it would have been harder. It just would have been slower and harder. So by having a kind of mentor model, and then there's a whole bunch of stuff on the deal term side. That's like, I want to say it's not obscure, but it's like, you don't get a ton of reps when you're a venture capitalist, even on the legal side of how deals get done. But there's some stuff that are best practices for sure in crafting a term sheet and which terms you are flexible on, which ones are you you want to stay absolute on, or even as companies are raising follow on rounds of financing or taking on venture debt, I was able to get a lot of exposure to that. And even now I still on deal terms, one of my partners is super savvy on the deal structuring side. And so for companies that get into hairy situations and are negotiating with lenders or negotiating with other investors, I'm able to be more helpful than I could be on my own because I just go back to like the wealth of knowledge in my partnership. And I'll be like, Hey, here's the situation, especially the hairy situations, like how would you handle this? And I get to look a little bit smarter because, you know, there's 25 years of investing that I can kind of pare it back to my founders, so.
2: All right. Let's talk about kiddos and when did they enter the picture for you and how do you think about your role as a
3: mom and and your career ambitions? Yeah. So my kiddos were there right from the beginning. I mean, basically, when I got the offer from Pritzker Group, I was 10 or 11 weeks pregnant. And so we hadn't really told many people, but kind of felt like, especially because there weren't many, any women on the venture capital team at that time. Like, I remember having a conversation with the managing director of Pritzker Group and being like, by the way, I'm pregnant. And so I'm like, and at that time I did, I had a handful of other options. So I was like, if this is not, you know what you thought you were getting into. Let's just have that conversation now. because And and I can tell, you can tell a lot by reactions that people have when you tell them you're pregnant. Like some people totally. are like, the best thing in the world. And then, you know, there are some people who, as I was in my first months at Pritzker Group meeting with folks in the tech community in Chicago, there were definitely some men who were like, wait, they hired you even though you're pregnant? Like they had like a little bit of like a shock moment where they were like, what? You know, because I didn't show till five, six months with my first. And so either way, but the managing director, his his reaction was like 100% so supportive. So he had three kids, you know, so like over the top, like supportive, I guess is the best word to say it, that I knew it was going to be a good place for me to be. Right. So I had my first in my first year there, I had my second two years later, or two and a half and two and a half years. So it's been a succession. I, interestingly, all of my partners who are older than me and all men all have three kids. I don't know what it is. And so I feel like they're they're very supportive of family at Frisker Group. And my role is a mom. I mean, I'm a kind of a tiger mom. I don't know. I feel like I grew up, I'm the product of a tiger mom, and so I'm pretty involved in my kids' life. So yeah, I I take both jobs very seriously. I don't sleep a lot, but I find I'm like most productive. My schedule has changed a lot to try to get everything done. So I have my like early morning shift and then I'm like on from Seven till nine to get my kids out the door, and then I'm you know back at work, and then I'm off from like, depending on the night, like I you know, I definitely carve out evenings with my kids and family as much as I can, but then I'm back online. And the nice thing about venture capital is you can it's a job that's very fluid. Like it's kind of all the time. Like if a founder wants to talk to me at 10 p.m., I'm taking a call at 10 p.m. But at the same time, if a founder wants to talk to me at 6 p.m. and I'm feeding my children at 6 p.m. or doing you know bedtime for the baby, I can be like, let's talk at 8 p.m. You know, And it's not a weird thing to tell a founder, you want to talk to them at eight 30 or nine, like they're on all the time. And so, so I found that it's a very, venture is an amazing job for women, especially women that want to have families, because you do have, you're on the buy side too. So you can schedule your calls and create your schedule whenever you want versus, you know, if you're a founder, I remember when I was a founder trying to get money in it or to get a deal done, you're like, I need the first available time. Like I don't want to slow anything down. And so you're a little bit more at the mercy of other people to create your schedule. So that control I think is what makes the difference. Wow. That's
2: I You heard it here, folks. Venture is a, a great career for, for moms. I love that framing. I don't think I've ever heard anyone say that before.
3: I feel like it's easier, Kristen, than what you – as a CEO or, you know, as a founder style, like it's just – you have so many more demands on your time. And when you're – again, you're not managing as big of a team, but I felt like when I was an operator or a founder, there were more people who – who's – who who needed me to do something at a specific time so I wouldn't be the bottleneck versus, again, like right now I control my own workflow a lot more. And so – Yeah.
2: I don't know. We're trying to – I'm hopefully going to approach this a little bit differently because I think there's all this research that shows that being on all the time and, you know, doing all of these things all at once, that doesn't lead to the best outcomes in the long term. And if you're a founder, you need to optimize for things being a marathon and not a sprint. So. I'm just trying to be conscious of that, but who knows? We're like in the very, 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 very – the earliest stages, so things will probably change. And let's just – I. what about like long term for you in terms of both your career ambitions and how you're thinking about that mom role? Does that influence how you're thinking about the long term?
3: You know, I feel like every year – I kind of do an annual review and probably every 2 to 3 years I'll do like a more like career review of like all right am I happy doing what I'm doing like life's too short to do things that don't make you happy but right now I'm pretty happy. So again like I right now I feel like I'm on a 10 year arc on the investing path and then in like 5 to 7 years I'll figure out like is this still the thing that makes me happiest where I think I can have the biggest impact or is there you know a place where my time would be better spent to have more impact. But I I feel like my kids need me most right now while they're small. Like this is the most demanding time. I hope, I don't know. You guys have some older kids than me. And so you might be able to tell me, I feel like I see the light. And I also know I've heard from other mom friends that after 10, 11, 12, like once your kids hit their teen years, they don't even want to be seen with you, let alone spend time with you. And so I'm like in 10 years from now, it feels like, Right now, I feel like I'm managing pretty well with, like, the hardest, most hands-on time period. And so I feel like I should get get more time for myself. Right now, I feel like the thing that suffers is I don't make as much time for myself. Yeah.
2: Well, that's great. I always feel, like, weird asking these questions because I feel like men don't get asked the questions. But at the same time, I wish that, like, my younger self would have had access to, like, a mother of young children who is also a GP at a venture firm, at a top venture firm saying like, hey, it's okay. Just go do your thing. You'll figure it out. So-
3: I mean, the truth is that women take on more of the burden at home, whether it's the like physical workload of rearing children or even the mental load of thinking of all the things running the house. And so if you're in a dual career relationship, like the men, yeah, it, it's just different. It still yeah. is. Times unfortunately have not changed so much. Okay. Nikita, Kristen, anything
2: else before I jump into probably the last question? All right. Nope, bring it home. All right. So we ask everybody this if you could give your 20 year old
3: self advice, what would it be? I think it would be to be less stressed out about making career decisions. Because I think when I was deciding to study engineering or when I was deciding to take my job at general, like I, every decision, and when I was younger, Twenty to thirty, I stressed out so much about, and now I kind of realized that it didn't matter because you can change your mind and you can change career path, and it's not so difficult. So, I think it would be the stress less. That was actually, I think that was my advice too. <laughs> it's yeah. Like you'll figure, <laughs> you'll figure it out. Figure it out. Just do the thing. It's experience. a common theme. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, like, work absolutely. with interesting people too is always my second thing. Like, I do feel like there are some people in my life who've set me on different paths or different trajectories or set me up for like the next 10 years of my life. Like, David Tish at Techstars, I feel like when he picked me to be part of that first cohort, it put me on a different trajectory and gave me all this access and things that I didn't have. And then when we were acquired by Retail Me Not, I had a really great boss named Jag. And then the CEO of Retail Me Not actually became a good mentor of mine. And like, they set me up for the next, Three things. Like, I feel like I'll never have to interview for a job again because I know there's all these interesting things that result from the relationships I've built in the past or the work that I've done in the past. And so, I do think that you know, if you can find the right people to work for, they will set you up for the rest of your career. And so, emphasis emphasis more on people almost versus like company focus area or stage or anything like that.
1: Yeah, I love that. I think that's so true. I think network and community and all of that is really, you know, sometimes doesn't get the focus it it really deserves because I think a lot of us can look back on those moments in those people. And even that, that what you said around like having that kind of hit list of like, I don't know what I'll do with you, but I want to do something with you in the future kind of list of people I think is super important. So, well, thanks so much, Sonia. That was really awesome. Folks, this has been Cross-Functional and Friendly Podcast. Check out our other episodes at crossfunctionalpodcast.com and follow us on Twitter at xfunctionalpod. See you all next time. Thanks.